I um, accidentally. Oh, oh I was we're, just, on. we're on. Okay. We're on. Um, the other day, I so I'm in between getting a master's in education, master's in social work, and so the next mm-hmm. two years, two three years, whatever, it ends up being, are me trying to figure out which mm-hmm. of the two feels like it resonates the most, or if I want to do a dual master's, mm-hmm. or what yep. that whole bit is going to look like, and so. Um, you know, in my exploration, I went to Google and I was just like, you know, how do I know what master's in social work I want to get in terms of focus for track and what school is going to be the right fit and that sort of thing. And it took me to what looked like a very reputable website that was just like, give us a little bit of information about what kind of things that you're interested in and, you know, your name and your phone number and just general track if you want to work with children and families mm. or if you want to do adults or mental illness, what kind of uh, population are you looking at working with? So I put in this information, and then turns out it was this, like, automated program that, like, spams your information huh. to a ton of different social work programs. Oh, no. And then they have had access to my name and phone number and my general interest and have been calling me for the last three weeks. Anywhere from, like, calls from Kalamazoo, Michigan, to San Antonio, to Seattle, Washington. Huh. I've just been blowing up my phone. So. All right, people, you have caught us right in the midst <laughs> of an office hours conversation with Marcella Jimenez. And uh, Marcella is not related to David Jimenez, who is also um, in another episode that will be oh, featured. Um, although it would be fascinating if the two of you were in the same family because those dinner conversations would be fun. Very interesting. Um, yes. <laughs> but um, So you are hearing Marcella talk... Um, right in the midst of it, of what it's like to search for higher education and jobs in the digital age. Mm -hmm. Um, We are sitting outside on the Bowdoin Quad, and you may hear birds chirping, or the bells of the chapel ringing, or the leaves rustling, or someone coming to say hi to us, and we'll try to be cordial (laughs) and send them on their way. kind of exciting that there's also tai chi that we can be observing right now the adult tai chi circle yes so marcella's from dallas texas and she's a graduating senior who is majoring in spanish and minoring in teaching she works in um, and has done a lot of work in peer health um, and we heard a lot about peer health from anna williams an earlier episode she also does work in admissions and she um, leads a group called fly and we will learn more about fly um, as we continue our conversation. So, um, my questions mm-hmm. for you are going to be three, and we will meander, and I will be responsible for getting us to those questions, and they are, what's most important to you? What does a liberal arts, liberal arts education mean to you? And what do you wish your professors knew? about you. Okay. So we're going to start with the first one and wherever we go, we'll go and we'll make sure we hit all, all of these by the time we're done in about 30 minutes or so. Sounds great. Um, so what's most important to you? So I've been thinking about this just because you had kind of planted these questions in my ear and I'd been ruminating on what is most important to me and every time that I would ask myself that question the first thing that would come back would be the people in my life um, and the support systems that have kind of gotten me through uh, you know my early years all the way through middle and high school and then now my years at Bowdoin I think part of that's also being an extrovert that I get energy from the people around me and that being surrounded by others is what fuels me to keep going and stay energized and that's kind of how I feed myself in terms of self-care and wellness and making sure that you know I can function at my best and so people definitely are at the center mm. of everything that I do. 
What has that looked like for you at Bowdoin? At Bowdoin, it's looked a lot of different ways. I think it's looked um, a lot like building support systems with the powers that be, you know, in the administration and having people in my corner who know this place and know the systems that are at work um, so that I can better understand how to maneuver through the systems. And that started as early as my pre-major advisor, mm. who was a professor in the religion department. Um, because I came into Bowdoin thinking that I wanted to double major in religion and psychology mm. and minor in gender women's studies. So an interesting trajectory. Yes. Um, that has taken me there, but she was a huge um, support in terms of figuring out how to navigate this place from mm. the academic side. Uh, on the social side, Whitney Hogan, who's the sponsor for Peer Health, has been huge in terms of uh, figuring out where do I fit in all of this and what kind of things do I do to engage people at, in community building and that aspect of what mm -hmm. it's like to be at Bowdoin. Um, and of course, my roommates, my friends, people in my classes, people who share the same interests and passions as me mm -hmm. that, you know, are fine having two and a half hour dinners where we discuss, like, what does it mean to teach for social justice or mm. uh, how am I making a positive impact in the world and, like, how can I use my talents and skills to uh, leverage positive change for others that that has also been a huge part. So what led you to... Um move from having this very clear idea coming in of what you were going to double major and minor in, <laughs> yeah. even though Bowdoin students are encouraged to come with an open mind and explore the curriculum, you had a clear idea yeah. of what was going to happen. And I have to say that even though Bowdoin students are encouraged to do that, most do come in like Marcella and have a pretty solid plan that mm -hmm. they think is the way things are going to go. But also, like you, students almost always change what the plans are. Yeah. And so what led to your change? A lot of it was figuring out what I wanted and what I wanted my Bowdoin experience to look like and mm. be, that that was a big part. Um, also, what I was good at and what mm. made sense to me was also a big role. Um, so psychology as a major in field of study wasn't exactly what I wanted it to be. Um, the courses that I kind of ended up in due to scheduling and the way that I chose to structure uh, my semesters weren't particularly engaging. Like I didn't find those courses to be the most stimulating mm. for me. Um, and so I was like, you know, if I'm in these courses and I wasn't particularly doing very well in the site courses mm -hmm. either because I wasn't interested. So I didn't put the time in mm -hmm. and it ended up being this kind of back burner class. Um, and so I had to take a minute and be like, okay, if I'm putting these things on the back burner, what's on my front burner? What do I care about? Mm -hmm. um, what things am I attending to because I like them and find them enjoyable and satisfying? And that is what led to the shift. So what did you like about studying Spanish? For me, a lot of it was a cultural component. Um, I grew up speaking English and Spanish at home. Um, my dad is from South America. My mom is from Massachusetts. And so he would talk to me only in Spanish. My mom would talk to me only in English. And so that way I kind of had both languages. Um, but then when we were living in Kentucky, I distinctly remember it was in kindergarten. I was in like a K-1 class. And my dad came to pick me up from school one day. And he was, you know, hola chiqui, como estas? And so I, you know, responded to him. And we had a little conversation. And I remember the kids being like, why are you talking in Spanish? Like, that's kind of weird. Like, why don't you just talk to your dad in English? And I remember being, like, very self-conscious and hmm. aware of this, like, you know, what 
really is very much like an asset, but being very ashamed mm -hmm. of my culture and my heritage and this linguistic part of my identity. And I carried that around with me for a really long time um, and, you know, would refuse to speak in Spanish and uh, became very mm. self-conscious. And so then coming to college, I was like, you know, like, I actually really do want to embrace this part of who I am and get mm -hmm. to know more of what the language is like and how um, the language is represented in literature and cultures. And I just recently took a class on uh, the idea of Latin America. And so mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time exploring Latin American identity and how um, Latin American identity kind of coincides but also doesn't coincide with being Colombian and what it means to be someone who's half Colombian in the United States and like the label of being a Latina, what does that mean to me at a personal level? Mm -hmm. um, and so the cultural piece was huge mm -hmm. in keeping Spanish as part of my uh, academic trajectory. Are you comfortable talking about what it does mean to be a Latina? Sure, yeah. Um, and I know you're speaking only for your experience. Right, right. Oh, totally, totally. All, not all Latinas. I feel the same way. Yeah. yeah, right. And, yeah. I, and I think that's what's great about speaking with other people who... Um, identify as Latina mm -hmm. and how it comes out in different ways for them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was never really hugely involved in Lasso or any of mm -hmm. the, um, you know, groups on campus that... Lasso um, is the Latin American Student Organization. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, definitely have had conversations with people in the group and the Women of Color Coalition and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, so, for me, a lot of it is, like, um, what does it mean to be biracial uh, for someone who passes, who is white, like mm -hmm. not, not even mm -hmm. white passing. Like I just, I think that, you know, and, and race is this social mm -hmm. construct, right? And it's how, mm -hmm. how do you really draw the line of where white ends and another race begins. Um, but as someone who definitely like is perceived as white, but identifies with being Latina can be really complicated um, because then there's this internal struggle against like people putting a label on you and wanting to be like, Oh, well, how can you be a Latina if you're white? Or like, you're not really Latina if you don't do X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. like, you know, listen to this music or do this dance or celebrate this holiday. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, it's about like knowing my family, knowing where I come from, um, having the perspective of someone who grew up like in a bilingual household mm -hmm. and who you know has big mariachi bands that come <laughs> and play for like every birthday and you know um have big you know parties with food and uh, people from all sides of my family both you know the people from Massachusetts and the people from Columbia and like I have a huge convergence of cultures happening um this weekend because it's commencement mm -hmm. and so my dad's best friend from medical school is coming and my grandma who only speaks Spanish is coming and these people from my dad's side of the family who've never interacted with my mom's side but who so wholly feel like part of me mm. um and so for me being a Latina is like having that come together and not be at odds, but that it can actually exist in concert with one another mm. and just be part of who I am. Is that something you learned here at Bowdoin, or did you feel that way before you came to Bowdoin? I think it's something I always knew. Or, or um, let me add one more, mm -hmm. or in spite of Bowdoin. I think at an end of the familial piece of... Um, the families being in concert with one another was something that I definitely have come to develop over the course of my life and kind of seeing, you know, what happens when my mom goes to Columbia and what happens when my dad hmm. goes to Massachusetts mm -hmm. and how Vegas people are really different in those spaces, you know, because of like 
linguistic and cultural capital that differs between the two mm-hmm. because it is it is really different for my mom who can speak Spanish but really only speaks in the present tense to be amidst my dad's family where no one speaks English mm-hmm. and um, you know then my dad who still sometimes you know doesn't understand a lot of the idiomatic expressions and things like that despite having lived in the country for 20 years uh, try and interact with my mom's you know very raucous side of the family so <laughs> I learned a lot of that growing up watching them in those environments um, but at the individual level of how do the labels that I use to identify myself, um, how, how do people react to those labels? Mm-hmm. That A lot of that development has happened at Bowdoin, and I've had conversations with other Bowdoin students who are biracial um, or identify as Latina but pass as white, um, and how that can be very complicated in terms of campus activism and participation mm. in racial justice issues, um, just because it's difficult to find a space that feels like mine um, because when I'm in spaces with students who are white I kind of feel like I have to speak up and be the voice not for people of color necessarily but kind of represent uh, issues that affect people of color just because people in my family have been so deeply affected by those issues and I have to a degree you know based on people stereotyping me because of my name but then it's more tied to my name than it Mm -hmm. is to my skin color yep um versus then being in spaces with people of color where I then feel like, you know, this isn't my platform. I have to sit back and listen and absorb and kind of take in this information Mm -hmm. and use it to be an ally. Um, And so navigating that, Bowdoin has taught me immensely um, how to be empathetic and uh, but also has pushed me to consider what space is mine and what identities do I have the right Mm -hmm. to claim. Um, And I think that I'm still working through that, but that makes a lot of sense yeah <laughs> when you think about your friend group mm-hmm. what does your friend group look like in terms of is it uh of students who come from a variety of backgrounds are they mm-hmm. predominantly white or is there is there any pattern to mm-hmm. your friendships we're pretty geographically diverse is the big thing um i mean some of my best friends are from colorado kentucky uh, California, um, those, you know, kind mm-hmm. of more Western areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, obviously I do have friends who are from just outside of Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, predominantly white definitely is uh, something that I would use to describe my friend group. I think that one common theme that ties us together is we're all passionate about something um, and about committing ourselves to that passion mm. um, and that we're goal-oriented in that way. And a lot of my friends are really passionate about social justice and don't shy away from talking about these issues of race and class. And I find that I can have very open and honest conversations, even with my friends whose opinions differ very vastly from mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that people are coming from such different places, both in terms of geographics and then socioeconomic demographics. And my friend mm-hmm. group is also pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to be able to have those conversations um, with them has been mm-hmm. really valuable. What is FLY? Because I know Mm -hmm. it has something to do with supporting young women and maybe it also ties into identity development and things like that. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about what FLY is about? Yeah, so FLY stands for Fostering Female Leadership in Youth. And we are a mentoring program comprised of Bowdoin women. And we work with girls at Bath Middle School and Morse High School. And I 
co-lead the middle school program um, with two other Bowdoin students. And the way that our program is set up is we come in to the school every Friday, we do an hour of a lesson that's structured around some theme and essential question, and then half an hour of one-on-one mentor-mentee time um, where the middle school girls can develop you know, a really strong relationship with a college mentor. And so near-peer mentoring is a big mm-hmm. facet of the program. But in terms of the lessons, we try and cover a lot of different ground from um, you know, the basics of what does it mean to be a good friend, what does good communication look like, to who am I and what is my role in the world, how can I be a literate media consumer and mm-hmm. understand the messages that are being thrown about me. Uh, thrown at me about what it means to be a teenager. Um, we also mm. do a lot of work with them on deconstructing um, okay. racial and gender norms and stereotypes mm-hmm. um, and also do a lot of work to break down kind of heteronormative uh, language or representations in the media mm-hmm. and get them to start asking critical questions about what is the information that I see, what does it tell me about who I am, and then how can I challenge those messages mm. in my daily life and in my conversations yeah. with friends and family. That's great. It's awesome. What have you gotten out of it? Um, People underestimate middle schoolers regularly. Like, they write them off as being these, like, moody, emotional, uh, like, you know, uh, disengaged people. Mm -hmm. And they're so much more than that. Like, they have really big questions and deep thoughts and, like, want validation and want to understand who they are. Um, and that they need support more than anything else. Um, so for me, it's understanding that. It also has gotten me a lot to reflect on my middle mm. school self and, like, you know, what that fly would have been something I would have really loved to have been a part of. Um, and then also getting strong relationships with other Bowdoin women mm. has been huge mm-hmm. um, because it has served as another form of like I was talking about that social support mm-hmm. and network on campus of people who think similarly to me in terms of um, you know community service and building community and things like that so mm. it's served as kind of like my own community within a community of them. So it's pretty clear what your intentions are for FLY. Mm-hmm. What do you think at least in the time that you've participated that the girls get out of FLY? I think they get a lot, um, and that's not me being cocky as the... I hope it's not, <laughs> it doesn't come off as me being cocky as no. the program's like, it's so successful! Um, but we consistently get praise from the staff and faculty at the school and have a really great relationship with people in Bath, and they're so excited and have actually been solicited by uh, Brunswick Junior High to start a fly program there just because of how successful it's been at Bath in terms of developing this like social competence mm-hmm. in middle schoolers and that these girls really are leaders in their school and in their grades and can create positive culture shifts. And oh, so huh. even just having fly in the school from what I've heard from the vice principal and the principal is that it has just, just even if it's just a little bit, but that they've noticed a difference in the culture of the middle school because of Fly's presence there and because they have these strong women who are so excited about being leaders in their community. That's amazing. That's it really is. great. It's exciting. And to and to see the difference on the girls, too, because when we, we table at the back-to-school night and they see Fly and they come running up to the table, mm-hmm. like, when's Fly going to start? Like, I'm so excited. I'm so ready. Um, you know, one girl who's in the ninth grade now uh, brought her younger sister, who was a sixth grader, and was like, you need to join Fly. Like, it's oh, the nice. best thing that you'll do. Like, this changed my life in middle school um, because I think it's this time where, like, kids are so self-conscious mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, don't really believe in themselves. So to 
have someone who is like, I believe in you, you can do it, and to also be surrounded by their peers who are also buying into the mm, same messages mm-hmm. and getting that positive social reinforcement is really powerful. And I think right, you're actually creating a, an affinity group. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Um, I know you're thinking about teaching. Mm-hmm. You're a minor in teaching. Um, are are you thinking about teaching? Would you want to teach the middle school level now that you yes. have had this experience? Absolutely, with these young I think women? I think middle schoolers are amazing, um, and they're it's a great age because their intellectual competence is very you know higher than. Uh, kindergarten in terms of what they can do and the kind of work that they can do and from a curricular standpoint I would really love to be the teacher that hands them the book that unlocks something for them you know like for me it was the moment that I read The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Mm. Juno Diaz and there were parts of the book in Spanglish and I was just like you can do that like, you can, you don't have to write in English the whole time. Like, you can mm. infuse the text with, like, these different things. And I remember coming in to discuss it in class the first day, and I was just, like, so excited and so ready. And there were other people in my class that were like, I don't really get this. Like, what is this? Like, I don't understand what chanclas are, like, <laughs> how that's relevant to this part of the story. And uh, for me, it was like, no, but, like, you know, it's, it's for me, it was, like, this huge mm-hmm. thing of, you know, groundbreaking uh work that I'd never really been exposed to before and so for me like to be able to do that for a middle schooler who's in the process of figuring out who they are and like also in this time where it's like anything that's different is uh, by default weird and other and it's like (laughs) what if all we talk about is the other what if we're all others and we're just trying to like live in our otherness together like how cool would it be to just Mm -hmm. talk about that and to see that represented in literature and to talk about what that means I think you can be able to reference this podcast in interviews and say, <laughs> if you want to hear a little more about my thoughts about teaching, listen in. Because right. That's, I mean, you have me sold. That's, I want you to be teaching my daughter for sure. Oh, good to know. I'll take Natalie any day. <laughs> um, all right. Let's move to right. our next question. Um, and that is, so what, what does a liberal arts education mean to you? Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the things it means is that I came in thinking I was going to be a psych religion <laughs> double major with a minor in GWS and end up where I am right now with my, you know, Spanish major and my minor in teaching. I think it, for me, is about having a diverse knowledge base um, where you can pull from a bunch of different disciplines and use the information that comes from Africana studies and chemistry and dance and bring it all in to talking about teaching middle schoolers how to annotate a text, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. the the world doesn't exist in silos. Like, there are not discrete categories. You can't draw clean-cut lines between what is and isn't relevant or what is and isn't meaningful. Um, You know, everything has meaning and we're all connected by various different strands that we can never fully tease out. And I think the liberal arts is just an attempt to start teasing out some of those strands. Hmm. Um, And one of the things that I say about, um, on my tour about the liberal arts and because I give tours for admissions, is um, the liberal arts is kind of this philosophy that in order to know a lot about one thing, you have to know a little bit about everything. Mm -hmm. Because you can never totally, fully, and completely understand one, you know, solid discipline without complicating it. Because if you haven't complicated it, you don't know it. Hmm. 
Lovely. Thank you. <laughs> Check. So what do you wish your professors knew about you? And I guess this is a retrospective right. piece, but even if you could put yourself, imagining you had to take courses next year, mm-hmm. what would you wish your professors knew about you? Hmm. This is the question that I think was the hardest one for me. Do you think it's because you are so open and you already developed strong relationships with faculty? I'm just, but maybe that's just my perception of you, and right. that's not true across the across your course experience. I would say that it's very accurate. I think more of the question is like, what do my professors want to know about me? Is um, you know, because I think each professor wants to cultivate different kinds of relationships with their mm. students. Mm-hmm. And some professors that I've had are very much into cultivating those kinds of relationships and being like, yeah, come over and have brunch and we'll talk about, I remember Katie Burns did mm-hmm. that at the end of uh, 2203. She was like, come over, everybody, we're gonna have brunch and we're gonna watch your final projects because we had to mm. make movies as part of our final projects. Um, and some professors aren't comfortable with that line and that's not their style and that's, mm-hmm. you know, they don't, they don't want to have me over for brunch in their kitchen and that's you know fine with me um and so I think I am willing to be as open as professors are willing to let me Mm -hmm. and I it's a lot of with getting to my professors it's feeling out and finding okay what is your line what is your comfort zone Mm. of how much information you want or need or what kind of relationship you're willing to cultivate with your students and at Bowdoin I've been very fortunate to find that most professors are um you know, willing to get to know you at the more personal level and office hours aren't just about, you know, come in and we're going to talk about the paper. It's mm-hmm. come in, we're going to talk about the paper and we're going to talk about other things that make you who you are. Right, because I was going to ask you, do you feel alienated if you have a professor who is not the person who says, come over and have brunch? Mm-hmm. You're still able to find some kind of connection, possibly, right. with them in right. office hours or... I think so. And I think for me, I respond so well and so strongly to like extroversion and people Mm -hmm. who are very much bubbly and and I kind of like, you know, I get a good vibe from you if that's the vibe that you're sending out. Um, And so sometimes professors that are a little bit more professional and standoffish, I'm like, oh my God, they don't like me. Like they don't want to get to know me. That'll Uh, sometimes be the narrative. But then I have to think about, um, you know, what is it that they want out of this relationship? And if they see our relationship is being a very professional one, which is, like, great and totally works with a lot of the professors that I've had, um, then I have learned not to take that personally if they don't want to be my best friend Mm -hmm. um, and and understand that. But I think, by and large, professors at Bowdoin really do make a concerted effort to get to know their students beyond the classroom because, for a lot of professors, that's why they're here, um, is not to just stand in front of a class and lecture and do the research and, you know, be like, oh, the students are kind of, like, secondary to me doing what I want to do, but that learning actually happens in concert with students and that there is reciprocity in those relationships. Um, And so I guess maybe what I want my professors to know is how much I value the time that they take to educate Mm -hmm. me and to get to know me and to see me as more than, you know, someone who stays up late doing the readings and writes the papers and turns the work in on time and shows up for class that, um, you know, that I also want to be there and appreciate that they show up for me just as much as I show up for them. That's lovely. You had a question for me. I do, yes. I'm curious how this podcast came about and um, kind of what your vision is for what this is or what it could be. Mm. Um, So when I was 
crowdsourcing um, a title, mm -hmm. um, and I have to say that um, it will come as no surprise to you, I think, that Nadia Celis helped me. Um, she actually arrive, arrive is one of my favorite time. professors, oh, I will say. Nice. And um, we run into each other in the airport always coming back from Columbia on spring break. And so we always get dinner at JFK <laughs> oh, nice. together before we fly back. Are you back. taking JetBlue um, so, you can have oh, yes. a nice, so you can have a nice dinner in the in That the is terminal? exactly why I take JetBlue. Yes, um, exactly. But pardon, I interrupted you. Continue. Sorry, sorry. Crowdsource you, your title and talk oh, well, to Well, I was going to say, and JetBlue has not sponsored this podcast yes, at all. But no. maybe I need to them up now. So anyway, so she helped me as I was crowdsourcing and you know she talked about corporate corporeality or embodiment or mm -hmm. something and I thought oh embodying the liberal arts like mm. that is what I need to talk about what does it mean to live this mm -hmm. um and so I wrote a little blurb to the people I was crowdsourcing it uh to and saying okay here's why I'm doing this and um some of the things I said that as I was on sabbatical this year, mm -hmm. um, but I was still close enough to know what was going on. I was only 30 miles, you know, or you know, 30 minutes south in Portland. Right. Um, so I was aware of what was going on on campus. Um, some students had reached out to me and asked me to meet them at a Black Lives Matter rally mm -hmm. in Portland, and I had done that. And so... I'd seen uh, student activism around Black Lives Matter, um, and I'd also seen students' uh, responses to instances of cultural appropriation mm -hmm. that were so um, painful to many students, I right. think. I think it was painful for students who, um, who felt as though their culture and identities and selves and place at Bowdoin was threatened. Um, and diminished, um, and and just uh, and caricatured uh, mm -hmm. by by the cultural appropriation. Um, but then I also think that some students were truly confused. Right. By what 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 did I do wrong? I don't understand. I don't want to be a bad person. Mm -hmm. um, but now I'm in trouble. And so, what does that mean? Right. And so um, I just saw, you know, our, ours is such a small community that I just saw pain mm -hmm. happening. And I was hoping that I might use um, what I consider a strength um, of mine to intervene mm -hmm. on, on a community in pain a little bit. And so I love talking to students. Um, I am able to develop pretty strong relationships with students and students from all different backgrounds right. and so I thought what if I had conversations with these students that could be shared and then folks who um, at folks at Bowdoin could um, develop just a little bit more empathy mm -hmm. um, and also identify a little bit more right? so a lot of people have talked about a sense of vulnerability and then right. they haven't they aren't they don't feel as though they can be vulnerable here and if more students at Bowdoin knew that they um, that they were not alone mm -hmm. in that I think that that could only contribute to the health and well-being of this place um, I think that um, 
there are times where all of us need to be better and I am not perfect by any means. I get educated all the time in all of these things. Right. Um, but that if, if we can have a, a bit more reciprocity in that as faculty and staff, we could learn from you mm. and listen to you, um, we would benefit from that um, and develop uh, sensitivity where sensitivity is needed or understanding where understanding is needed. And then finally, there have been a lot of um, sort of small-minded attacks on the liberal arts and how right. and how and and what a bunch of hooey um, <laughs> they are. And so I thought that you all would be no better. You know, you would be the very best um, ambassadors for right. explaining um, and and truly embodying what it means. So that's why. Great. Well. Best of luck as you go Thanks. forward. And, Thank you. Uh, talking to students and collecting that information, and I think yeah. that it is an excellent and noble effort. I think <laughs> that as students, we have a lot of learning and listening to do from each other, but that, um, you know, by the same token, faculty and staff are part of this learning and growing process, mm -hmm. too. And then as much as we need to learn to be patient with other students, we need to also be patient with, um, you know, the... Uh, faculty and staff on campus that are also learning alongside us and to not you know leave them out of these important conversations too. yes yeah it's a place of learning it is thank you <laughs> thank you how's it going Shauna <laughs> <laughs>